You're listening to the Seeking Peace Story Show, recorded live at the Marion Ross Performing Arts Center, August 10th, 2017. Here's Act Two. Welcome back. We have four more stories. Get your tissues ready. If you have a pocket full of memes and movie quotes and your radio tuned to country music, you have Jen Zoller's attention. Throw in a cabin by the lake and there's a good chance she'll let you put a ring on it. She's inspired by people who work hard and have fun. She adores her hilarious, energetic boys, as well as hazelnut iced coffee, singing, social media, sunsets, supporting the Albert Lee Tigers, and her patriot blue Durango. Choosing Peace by Jen Zoller. What do I know about peace? I'm a mother of three young boys, divorced, with a rewarding but hectic full-time job and a propensity for lowbrow humor, all while battling depression and anxiety. Peaceful isn't a word I use often, or often enough. One definition of peace reads, freedom of the mind from annoyance, distraction, anxiety, etc. That is speaking my language. Freedom of the mind, yes, please. If I could just remove the top half of my skull, sprinkle out its contents, and put back in the important bits, like my faith, about a hundred passwords, how to open a beer, the boys' birth weights, and what my grandparents were like, and shenanigans with my friends, that'd be refreshing. Clearly ugliness, reset. But back here in reality, insurance doesn't cover lobotomies just for funsies. I checked. (laughs) So how can I maintain a sense of peace in times when seemingly everything is falling to pieces? One of the fundamental facts of life I've discovered is, if you can't first and foremost find peace of mind within your own headspace and in your own beliefs, you're not going to find it anywhere else. In October 2011, my nephew Tanner died of an accidental heroin overdose at age 21. Tanner was one of the gentlest people on earth. He was soft-spoken and had a passion for music, especially playing guitar. He had the most amazing smile that we miss so much. Losing Tanner tore a hole in our hearts that'll never be sewn shut. Our family was consumed by sadness. We were fractured. We shed seemingly endless tears and lamented the what-ifs. How could this wonderful young soul have been taken from us so abruptly? How could all of us any of us ever heal from his terribly premature departure from this earth. We undeniably, naturally, all lean on each other, especially in times like this. But as individuals, we heal at our own pace and need to take our own time to find our own paths to regain our own brand of peace. My sister, Tanner's mom, has always found tranquility in putting pen to paper about her thoughts and feelings. My mom needs to vent outwardly and often about how she feels. My niece, Tanner's older sister, was shell-shocked and openly angry about his death. Understandable, because anger is just Sad's bodyguard, right? The rest of us fell all over the grid in combinations of feelings and how to express them. While we're not an outwardly religious family, we're Lutheran, so we stay in our pew and keep a lid on it. (laughs) 
We do believe. I believe. We prayed fervently, not only for then, but for the months and years to come. The beautiful thing I'll forever ground myself on is that, while he didn't mean to leave us so soon, Tanner is home. I believe he is with God in heaven. All the things he was grappling with and hurting from, our Savior has put to rest. Tanner is smiling that perfect smile, playing his guitar, and being one of heaven's coolest angels. We love you, Tan Man. When Grandpa Tut went up to heaven when I was 20, my relationship with God was solidified. Finally, my beliefs made sense and felt concrete. The instant Mom told me Grandpa passed away, I could picture him in heaven, finally himself again after those debilitating strokes. Grandpa is up there in heaven, playing cribbage, cussing, golfing, telling Judge Wapner how much he liked the people's court, <laughs> and watching over all of us trying to figure things out down here. With Tanner and the posse of all my grandparents, our family has a spectacular set of guardian angels, and we need them. On November 18th, 2013, at 5.31 and 5.33 p.m., our twins were born. They were 10 weeks premature. Andy weighed four pounds, four ounces. He weighed less than a chihuahua. Maddie weighed one pound, 13 ounces. He weighed less than a pineapple. So we prayed some more. We sat with and snuggled our babies. I pumped every few hours. Jeff worked when he could and juggled more things than anyone should ever have to. Our older son, Jack, floated between home, family members, and part-time preschool. We made countless trips from Albert Lee to Rochester and back again, wearing a weary path up and down I-90. We had an army of prayer warriors, church congregations, and loving family members and friends in our corner. So very thankfully, the boys had no serious or lasting complications from their premature birth. After two months and four days, Andy came home from the hospital. After another endless, exhausting month, Maddie came home, exactly three months after delivery. Our time in the neonatal intensive care unit was over. Thank you, God, for blessing us with the doctors and nurses who kept our babies alive. For too long, I had trouble letting go of the idea that everything needed to be perfectly settled in order for me to be at peace. Too often, I would forget that no matter how often I screw things up, how wrong things seem to be going, or how frenzied a day our family might be having, God has my back. I'm not out shoving Bibles in people's faces, and I sometimes miss church. But no matter what, he is always there for me. He is where I find solace. So, facing depression and anxieties and the tedium of everyday life, with his help, I have to learn to overcome, to stop dwelling on the negative and find, revel, and rejoice in the good. Jeff and I separated in January 2016, and one year later, our divorce was final. I've never been so badly broken or come back from as much as I did during that year. Never would we want to relive 2016, but I'm enormously grateful for it because it was the most transformative of my 38 years. I quit being so codependent and finally saw for the first time that I could rely solely on myself, be a thousand times better mother to the boys, and that everything was going to be okay. Now I get to figure out who it is that I'm truly meant to be. I keep working at it, keep evolving, and keep seeking peace. While Jeff and I operate in separate households, we will forever be co-parents and friends. 
He is hands down one of the funniest people I know, and I'd be ridiculously remiss if I didn't tell you what a rock star dad he is and how much the boys adore him. We were blessed to be a couple for 16 years, and God continues to take care of both of us as our relationship ebbs and flows while we learn to navigate these new waters as ex-spouses. I am thankful for him. We are thankful for each other most days. <laughs> Every day, I have to make the decision to choose peace over worry, choose happiness over misery, be a master of my own thoughts, to steer them toward positivity instead of that murderer of blue skies, negativity. I don't always win. In fact, I often falter and have to ask God and my friends and family for forgiveness, and thank goodness they all keep loving me. Trust the process, guys. Be kind to people, and when you're not, apologize. Be gracious. Show gratitude. Rest when you need to. Brush off the guilt. Speak from the heart. Have faith in yourself and in God, if that's your jam. Peace is a beautiful, satisfying, comforting feeling. While all sorts of remarkable people, sometimes perfectly out of the blue and just when you need them, will be woven into the fabric of your life, your story, the truest sense of peace you'll find lies within your own very awesome, very capable self. May we all continue to find it. Thank you. Before I introduce our next speaker, I need to be clear that she wrote this intro, and I have to say that because it includes a culturally insensitive joke. <clears throat> All right. My Dang Huen was born in a coconut-sized town, which was surrounded by coconut trees in West Vietnam. Her everyday appetizer was coconut. Her everyday main dish was coconut. Her dessert was also coconut. <laughs> People thought that when Mai grew up, she would be as tall as a coconut tree. But nope, roses are red, violets are blue, there is always an Asian who is shorter than you. <laughs> that, that was the joke. <laughs> so today, Maya is here to tell you her not-so-coconut-sized life story. Maya says she's going to speak and hopefully you are going to listen. If you finish listening before she finishes reading, which you won't, she'll have a coconut waiting for you. <laughs> we Are One by Mai Dang Huen. First of all, I want to say thank you to Mrs. Nestor and Luz for having me writing my essay. I was born in Vietnam, a developing country, and I grew up with the thought that I had to be dependent on men. The biggest goal of a girl in my situation was marry a good man, give birth, and support my husband. I was taught these things since I was young. My grandma always told me that no matter how much I try, I never could be as smart as boys. When I was four, I loved plastic guns and play soccer. But my mom didn't like me to play with soccer or guns because they were not girly. She bought me dolls and taught me how to cook. 
I have a cousin who I would always hang out with. She would always wear either sporty clothes or a soccer uniform. Her parents were very upset about this because soccer uniforms and sporty clothes are only for boys to wear. Finally, they throw all her soccer uniforms and her sporty clothes away. She cried for days. When I was five years old, I asked my mom, Mommy, why did you decide to have me when you already have my sister? She responded, because I expected you to be a boy. Not surprisingly, I started to believe that I was not welcome in this world. However, I got used to that idea that girls were not welcome to this world because of people in my country and our neighbor country, China, practice sex discrimination. Most families love to have males because they don't need to change their last name when they are married or leave their family to live with their wife's families. However, humans can never choose the gender of the baby. Some of the women are forced to abort because they were pregnant with a girl. Even abortion could risk the mother's lives. Some of the women are forced to divorce because they can't have a boy. Or they have to accept their husband having a mistress or a second wife. When I was six, people spread a story of the two girls who were pregnant when they were 16 years old. Their boyfriends didn't want to take responsibility for the babies. The parents of the two girls didn't want to take responsibility. I'm sorry. The parents of the two girls were very upset about their daughters being pregnant. The two girls were badly bitten by their parents. The parents gave them a choice, either abort the babies or keep the baby and be disowned from their own family. One of them kept the baby and the other was forced to abort. The girl who kept the baby lives a hard life. Everyone labeled her as out of wedlock pregnancy girl. Her baby was treated very badly and unequally because she didn't have a father. She was bullied by her classmates and her friends. The one who did the abortion also didn't have a great life. Everyone did talk about her, but people started to forget about her story. She was then married. After one month, her husband abused her because she, he found out that she had an abortion when she was young. The parents from her husband's side judged her. She was disarmed from the family. Later, she committed suicide. However, the fathers of the babies have a right life. No one cares about their past. They have beautiful wives and happy lives. In Vietnam, many girls were brave. 
People usually said she deserved it because she always wears sexy clothes. I bet no one wants to marry her now, but they don't want to accept that in this situation, men are the choice makers. All the brave victims will never speak up for themselves because the society will always make up excuse for the rapists. They will give women disgusting looks as a pee of trash because they really value virginity. As a result, some of them committed suicide. When I was eight, I took confirmation classes at my church. In the confirmation classes, I was sexually harassed by a man who was 10 years older than me. He kept doing it for many days. I was so scared. In addition, during school, I was being harassed by a classmate. Both of them told me that I shouldn't tell anyone because if I did, no one would want to talk to me again. Or no one would want to marry a girl like me. I believe it because there was no one on the side of the brave or harassment victims. The pressure and the fear built up every day. Since that day, I've been really scared when a man gets too close to me, even my uncles and my dad. When I was 10, I liked to wear shorts and sleeveless tops when it was hot. My dad hated that. He said it was not right for the culture, and he said I could keep wearing them if I want to be brave. I assumed that he was right, because any time I went outside with shorts, guys always whistle and tease me. However, guys could wear anyone they wanted to wear. When I was 13 years old, I was adopted to the US. I had some white friends. They were very nice and friendly. However, sometimes they said some words that hurt me. One of them said, you read books because you are Asian. When I got an A in a hard class, another one said, it's obvious that you will get an A because you are Asian. They didn't know that I usually had to stay up until 3 a.m. for my test. They didn't give me the credit for my hard work. They always make me feel like I am an outsider by saying, because you are an Asian, you do this or that. Once, one of the barista at the coffee shop making fun of my accent. I heard some of the barista laughing at me. There were other times when I wouldn't know something, I would ask someone, only to have it explained to me by them responding. You won't know because you weren't born here. Are women less human than men? For many unborn baby girls, why don't they have a chance to see the sunlight? Why do we always make up the excuse for the bravest and blame the girls for being brave? Why do we always make women feel guilty for choosing the board but not men?
Why am I not treated like other American girls? The answer is because inequality and discrimination are still well alive on this planet. We are still making our fellow neighbors be the order. The order is a philosophy that you separate yourself from people or treat people differently based on the difference between you and them. To me, peace means the freedom to live the way we want, feel safe, and be who we want to be. I think peace will start we started by unification, and unification is started with similarity. The similarity is achieved by accepting difference and treating everyone equal. The big key, the big key to open to peaceful world is to stop making other people be our orders. We are not seeking peace for America only, but for this big world. How can the world be peaceful when there's only America at peace? According to the Chain of Being by Alexander Pop, we are our link. We all play a role in this society, in this world, and in everyone's life. In my English class this year, I learned about existentialism. And an existentialist says, God created us like an artist cutting out a piece of paper. We have our free will. God didn't make anyone be the artist. So don't blame God for the lack of peace. We are the peacemakers. We create our own world. Our mission is to love our brothers, our sister, and make this world better. Hashtag we are one. Thank you. David Larson's favorite pastime is learning how to be a better dad to his two daughters. <clears throat> he is an enthusiast for peace, harmony, and healing of body, mind, and soul. You may have seen David on the golf courses of Albert Lee, on stage with Minnesota Festival Theater or Albert Lee Community Theater, or walking off calories around Fountain Lake. He is currently trying to keep a bonsai tree alive in his office and chows down blueberries whenever possible. Married to Carol and joyful to be alive, David is eager to see the light in new and old friends alike. Allowing Peace by David Larson. I grew up feeling pretty lonely and isolated as a kid. My parents were somewhat uncomfortable with life. They were both guarded and quiet themselves, and I seldom witnessed a discussion about more than what time we were leaving for church or that the kitchen sink was clogged again. 
They seemed challenged about how to talk to each other, how to connect, how to rest into life. Consequently, we were not very close. I grew up not quite knowing how to talk to people, how to have fun in life, how to feel good. I did not know how to make friends, what to chat about over pizza, or what do girls want to talk about on a date anyway? Not fitting in is a terrible feeling. In high school, I took a psychology course with this, what seemed like a wacko psychology teacher. She sat on her desk and swung her feet as she told us about personality disordered patients and what caused people to do crazy things that let, left most of us scratching our heads and wondering, huh? But now that I think about it, aren't almost all teachers of psychology unique, like pole vaulters and spam lovers? That's what I'll do, I concluded. I'll become a psychologist and figure myself out. Psychologists have to learn about communication and relationships and what makes people tick and how to overcome problems. Besides, because of my background in the church, I knew I wanted to help others. It seemed rather rewarding to be able to ease people's emotional pain, to wade through their confusion together when they felt like I did, not knowing where to turn to find direction or how to feel like you belong. Now that turned out to be one of the best decisions I could have ever made. The studies and classes did turn productive and enlightening. I've helped countless folks who have lost their way, struggled with their own relationships, who have fought back suicidal thoughts, wrestled with drugs, or felt caught between staying in an unhappy marriage or risking being single again to find happiness. But perhaps the one who benefited most from my training was me. I did find my way out of the fog and into a world where I belonged. I found out how to make a difference, how to have an impact, how to make the world a better place. I've cried with those getting pregnant too early, trying to write their lives and their futures into balance. Women who found themselves unexpectedly married to abusive husbands and seeing no way out. Those sexually assaulted or abandoned or caught in going nowhere jobs or without a job at all. All of us searching. Searching for the answers to finding meaning in life safety and protection, love and compassion, and hope and peace. I once sat across from a person in my office who had been arrested for murder. I was asked to assess his danger not only to society, but also to those who would be holding him in jail. He did not deny participating in the cruelest asks against a human being that could possibly be imagined. Sinister, depraved, heartless to the bone. The more I met with him, though, the more it became apparent that with the challenges he faced, his broken home, his public embarrassments in school, his neglectful and abusive parents, his poverty, his chemical dependency, his lack of support from caring people, I realized that but for the grace of God, we could be sitting in each other's chairs 
Though his actions were appalling, I understood what drove his despairing soul and that underneath that rough, protected, isolated exterior was a hurting human being who wanted nothing more than to act differently, a sad soul who was looking for a way out of his misery, but he had no one to show him the way. His uniqueness, if it had had the chance to be nurtured, could have made him the next Hemingway, or the next Gandhi, or the next high school psychology teacher who could show some lonely, disoriented kid how to get out of self-condemnation and point the way for such a student to see his or her own unique contribution to a world in need. I discovered that he and I were perhaps having the most honest conversation of his life. And we both felt the blending of our hearts. We were one. In the absence of judgment, we understood each other. It was in those precious moments in my office together that we experienced a union of lost souls, an equality of value, and a connection that is rarely experienced between two human beings. It seems so easy to judge others these days, to find something wrong with those who are different from ourselves. Now I see those who are different as gifts. They fill holes that I can't fill and that no one else can fill. The uniqueness of people, especially the ones I can't understand easily, well, they're the greatest gifts of all. They expand my thinking, broaden possibilities for me, and bring a widening of my understanding of the world that only enriches it. My, the world is interesting. I've learned that being treated unkindly by others is not an attack, but a call for love. People can't express what they don't have. Having peace, to me, has come to mean realizing people are always doing the best they can with what they have. I've learned that to hold grievances against someone is irrational and silly, for how can you fault someone for doing their best? We all looked at the world through different lenses, and that's a good thing. Other people need me, and I need them. Instead of getting rid of people unlike me, I now do my best to embrace them and understand them and to look for what I can learn from them. For me, having peace means seeing no enemies and realizing all I have out there are friends. Even those that are out to destroy me make me stronger. And that is a gift. I'm by no means finished in learning these wonderful lessons from those who are different from me. Our differences, though, are our strength. And acceptance and understanding are the secrets to living in grace and ease. Peace is not something we chase. It's something we allow. God bless. Thank you.
While Mina Lian continues to pursue her special education degree, she also loves singing and playing her ukulele on the side. She has written songs about growing up on a farm where her best friends were goats, her 10, maybe 15 year college plan, and her ridiculous obsession for men she's met around the country who play guitar and sport the most luscious man buns. <laughs> Meeting Kunta Kinte by Mina Lian. The first time I heard the name Kunta Quinte, I was 21 years old. Kendrick Lamar had just come out with his groundbreaking album, To Pimp a Butterfly, and you could hear the song King Kunta playing just about everywhere you went. I was living in Texas at the time, off on another self-identity-seeking adventure that was now really beginning to exhaust me, as I was in another city looking for another something that I just couldn't seem to find. I was tired as I walked the streets, Kendrick's words preaching into my ears. King Kunta played once. It was a song to be listening to. I knew that this album was important, and up until then, I really had no idea why. Everybody wants to cut his legs off, I thought to myself, as I pondered these heartfelt and profound lines. What did this song mean? Who was King Hunter, and why didn't I know his story? King Hunter played a second time, this time in the background as I sat in a library, researching the story of the man behind the song. Kunta Kinte a fierce and rebellious slave born in Gambia, West Africa, and the main character from the novel roots the saga of an American family. I continued to read the story of Kunta. Tears rolled down my cheeks. I cried for him, a warrior who, despite the obstacles and mistreatment that he faced because of the color of his face, thrived in his blackness. I cried for myself, frustrated, confused, heartbroken, because I, a woman of color, a brown woman was unable to find confidence in her blackness. I didn't know how to be comfortable in my own skin, let alone my skin color. I didn't even know where to begin. I was seven years old when I was adopted. I was placed into a welcoming household, a privileged home filled with love. It was a home that I was familiar with as this family had fostered me my entire life. This family loved me for everything that I was. As a child of color growing up in an almost all white community, you can imagine how unique and sometimes challenging my experience was. I remember all the times I would watch my little sister get her hair done. I'd watch in envy as it was brushed, smooth, blonde, and wavy. So much prettier than mine. I used to think, how was it that I'd ended up with this thick head of black curls, too coarse and big to manage most days? I was always comparing myself to the idea of being white. How could I be more white? All I ever wanted growing up was to feel beautiful like all of my friends. To be beautiful was to be white, and to be white was to be successful. And because of the way that I looked, I always felt like an outsider in my own community. I must have been nine at the time when I came to the conclusion that I'd probably never date anyone, because boys didn't date girls like me. So I always kept quiet about my crushes. I'd admire from afar as I watched all of my other friends go through relationships week after week, accepting the fact that I would never be in one myself. For so many years, I've shut out this idea of being in a relationship and having the ability to let love in because I've never felt worthy of it. As I grew, I became accustomed to what is referred to as white culture. I had spent a majority of my life morphing into this person I knew my community would accept. Surprisingly, I hadn't dealt with a lot of discrimination because of the effort I had put into trying to be more white. 
is an already insecure 15-year-old. I had no idea what to take from this. I was sitting next to my long-time long best friend, whom I had done a good job of hiding behind at this point. She was everything that I wasn't. She was a blonde, blue-eyed bombshell with a heart of gold who could light up any room with her smile and infectious personality. She was someone that I could be next to and feel invisible with, which is what I had wanted, and it failed me at this particular moment. You look like a monkey, the boy a few desks away from me stated. I froze right then because I knew he was talking to me, but I didn't want to accept it yet. Hey, did you hear me? You look like a monkey. After this particular incident happened, I decided to be somebody that nobody could hate. I decided to be someone that this young man couldn't break. I hid my insecurities behind my humor and my smile and my body and my big curly afro. The year that I let loose of the fro was the year that I stopped taking myself seriously, my roots seriously, my being seriously. I used to walk in the halls in the morning time and I'd go around joking about my hair because if I joked about it, I wouldn't have to feel insecure about it, right? And my peers would touch it like it was some sort of pet. Your hair is so fluffy. Have you ever thought about straightening it? Your hair is so cool. I wish that I was black. That was one of the most ironic lines that I would hear all through high school. I wish that I was black. The next few years would only become more difficult and complex. Slavery had become a hard topic in one of my history classes, and To Kill a Mockingbird would make its way into my hands shortly after in an English class. I'd spent so much of my life denying the fact that these horrific stories I would learn about had something to do with me. This was my culture I was learning about. This was my history. How confusing was it to be a person of color learning about slavery in a room full of white students? It was always so hard for me to make sense of, so I would subconsciously remove myself from the topic, as much as now I wish that I would have paid more attention. I just used to think this wouldn't have happened to me. This would not have happened to me. I was hopeful for a fresh start at college in a new place with new people. I chose Winona State University, a predominantly white college that wasn't much different from my hometown. Go figure, that empty feeling came back in full swing. I was lost on the first of many self-identity-seeking adventures that I would set out on in the coming few years. I lasted a few semesters in Winona, frustrated with my inability to find myself in any of the classes I was taking or through the people that I was meeting. I left college in the spring of 2013, a time that I'll never forget. I was 20 and I had no plan, but as free-spirited wanderers like myself like to think, no plan can often be the best plan in times like that. My feet took me to Montana, and then Wyoming. After Wyoming, it was Oregon. And after Oregon, it was Texas, a state I never thought I'd stay in for more than a hot minute, but it was a place that I would end up calling home for more than two years. Dallas, Texas shifted things a little for me. I ended up working as a camp counselor at a camp for kids, teens, and adults with special needs. I was in an entirely new environment. I remember the first time that I noticed something that I had never seen before while at camp. All of us counselors had to get physicals in order to be approved for work. So within the first few days of being there, I had made a doctor's appointment. When I arrived, one of the nurses who introduced herself was an African-American woman. She led me to the back room where evaluations questions would follow, and I remember staring at her while she got everything ready and smiling. Up until that point, I had never been around women of color in such strong, powerful positions. It was something I'd only seen on TV, 
which explained my weird obsession with Oprah growing up. <laughs> As I walked through the doctor's office, I kept seeing all of these men and women of color busy at work. I suddenly felt reassurance in myself. I was in a room full of people that looked like me and that were doing amazing things. I never had role models like that growing up. It was like a light came on that day in a tiny little hospital room. I felt like I could be something. I ran into a woman at a music festival one hot summer night in Dallas. She had the most beautiful chocolate skin and her hair was as big as Mother Nature's earth. And I remember thinking that she looked radiant. I spent a few moments complimenting her on her style and beautiful black curls and told her, I wish I wouldn't have thrown so many years away on trying to make myself into something that it wasn't. And she said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, girl, you must always lo look at your hair as a crown. Carry it with love. And so I did. I would spend the next year in Texas making the most of my days, catching up on lost time. I would dive headfirst into music and people and culture, but especially the music. I discovered Lauren and D'Angelo, Sade, Aaliyah, Tupac, and Kendrick Lamar. For the first time in my life, I was beginning to feel comfortable in my own skin, my blackness. I carried that comfortability back to my home state in 2015, where I would eventually settle down in Minneapolis with an entirely different outlook on myself. Don't get me wrong, I'm still struggling to feel complete in a lot of ways, but I know that it has a lot to do with the lost time I've spent feeling out of place. I continue to be hopeful and take pride and ownership in my life because to me, that is what peace is. It's like fitting the entire world in your hands and placing it to your heart and never letting go. So these days I walk the streets of my beloved city of Minneapolis. Kendrick Lamar's new album, Playing in My Ears, Kunta Quinte on my mind, and I feel like a queen, crowned carried at its very highest level of love. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, before you depart, um, there are some thank yous in your uh, program, so I'm not going to mention them all. But uh, Seed House's donation, Albert Lee Seed House's donation, is a really big deal, uh, knowing that we can give all the money to the scholarship. That's really cool. I do want to thank uh, Laura May Photography, uh, who uh, has uh, been to the last couple shows, and she does a great job. So check out her photography. Um, uh, we'll definitely put some on our Facebook page. Make sure you go to the uh, Story Show Facebook page and uh, uh, see about further engagements. Um, Ross Persig's got some fancy mics here that we're trying to do something with uh, in the way of a, a podcast of, of tonight's performance. So um, look for that. Um, and of course, to uh, the Albert Lee Community Theater. Um, and most importantly, I want to thank uh, all of you for coming and to all the storytellers um, for, for being brave enough to stand up here and tell your stories. Some of them are really hard to tell and hard to hear. Um, but we need to hear them, and um, you know the internet is great and it uh, gets people together in a different way. But we still need to get together and hear each other's stories. So, thank you very much for coming. The Seeking Peace Story Show is produced by Riley Worth and me. 
Jeremy Corey Greenis. To hear more, check out our Facebook page and the Story Show podcast. Our intro and outro music was composed by Jasper Corey Flatto.